welcome guys. This is our, our weekly live stream, our Sunday live stream, where we pick some topics, talk about Genus Beer News, and uh, and, and shoot, the, shoot the breeze. Um, we'll start, as always, with some Genus updates. Uh, as you all are very well aware, there's a lot of things going on with businesses being shut down and uh, the, you know, the federal government offering loans and aid. And so a lot of this last week has been focused not only here, but at my other business downtown on trying to figure out the, uh, the rigmarole that is all those federal loan applications. Basically, Peter's been working really, really hard and stressing the living daylights out of himself and therefore stressing me by by like side default just watching him do all that and uh mostly because he's applied for loans and then reapplied for those loans and then like reapplied for them again because they keep changing the information <laughs> on me and i'm not i'm not like uh you know by trade a lawyer or an accountant who's designed to look through these so a lot of times Watch i just you know I, I, I ask my mom my mama Hey, don't spill tea all over your stuff. Oh, that and was say, really hey, close. Hey, do you know anything that I don't? Uh, and then sometimes I, well, she's actually, part of her job is looking through all this for the company that she works for now, which is actually really handy. But at the same time, keeping all this, uh, keeping up with all this information has been really, really fun. Also, on a more up note, yeah. we have actually kegged up the first two batches of Will It Beer, that being yeah. the, I don't even remember what it was that I made. That, that was a while ago. Yeah, now. with applesauce and raisins. Yeah. Well, yeah. I guess they're not kegged, but they're on tap. They're on, yeah, yes. they're on tap. They're they were kegged up a while ago. The, 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 the um, what punchline? The moral, the moral of this story is that when we first uploaded these Will It Beer series, these two beers were uh, freshly kegged and not conditioned at all. And so it was kind of, uh, you know, we we're glad that we were able to get those videos out on that timeline. But now that they're conditioned, they've become a much more re good representation of what they should be. And both of them are surprisingly good. There you go. So, so we'll have to do a blind tasting side by side on that in the near future so that you can... Uh, Get get a, get the final verdict that says that it I. It turns win. out we might be able to actually make beer around here. Who would have known, right? <laughs> um, speaking of Willet beers, our Willet beer series uh, number three beers got kegged as well. The chili uh, beers that you might have seen a little teaser for if you follow our Instagram. Uh, yeah, at Genus Instagram. What is it? Genus Gen Instagram dot com slash Genus Brewing. Instagram dot com slash Genus Brewing. Yeah, follow us on there. Uh, both of them, we got a really interesting chili edition in that Peter claims ruined his beer, but uh, we'll we'll see from there. You know, we we had to, we had to get it in there somehow. The it was it was the chili sauce that's what did it really. Yeah, the chili sauce is going to be the interesting ingredient. Both beers tasted great going into kegs, and then we had to add that green chili enchilada sauce. So coming out of kegs, uh, we'll see. <laughs> So, and then what's our last bit there? Um, let's see. We've also got, we started building shippable recipe kits. Oh yeah. That's kind of a big deal. Yeah. Um, we are, uh, for those of you, if you actually are listening, we already had a couple orders. Um, we just put that live on Friday. Friday, yeah, and a couple people have already done it. Uh, we're still working through the best overall shipping costs, <laughs> modification things that's going on. So uh, we, we might have thought that $8 of shipping to ship throughout the continental United States was going to be enough, and well, turns out that might not be the case right now. We expected a little bit of a loss, but now, I mean, there's a lot of ways that we're trying to get uh, just overall get all, the overall cost down while keeping the production and the quality, the aesthetic of the box looking good i know right we so. got that we, we got this awesome graphic to put yeah. on boxes in fact i made like another one for stats that i'd like to throw on there um, but at the same time we don't want to spend like what would that end up being like 40 dollars between the the box graphics yeah. and yeah, shipping and the, it to yeah. places so we're kind of torn right now because we want it to look really nice for everyone that wants to buy one but at the same time but it looks like the uh, it's the gonna best box shipping double the price yeah. of the kit the best, the best shipping box right out there right now is those one size fits all boxes, which, uh, you know, they don't look as good, but we can always figure out a way to brand the inside of the box too. <laughs> we'll figure that out. But that's, uh, those two will be shipping out tomorrow. Uh, the first two orders. So that's going to be super fun. So we can hopefully, if you're watching, give us some feedback and let us know, first of all, how the brew day goes, uh, how the box looked when it arrived, uh, all that jazz. Cause we want to make sure that we're doing the best by our customers as possible. Yep. And it's always harder when they're not local. Cause then we don't, you know, we don't have that face to face where we can make sure that everything goes well. But yep. there are a couple things that we're doing in the kits to make sure that you have the best overall possibility of making good beer. For example, we're actually including a little bit of starter. Yep, starter, uh, nutrient with that starter. Yep. Uh, what else? I think I threw in a couple stickers in the uh, one. Yeah, so just, stickers trying, so just trying to you know make things yeah. make make things work well. So. And that first beer is a coffee beer, and we went ahead and got like super super fresh locally roasted coffee, so it's gonna taste yep. fantastic. Yep. For those of you tuned in, um, that is available on our website. Is it is it should just be Genus Brewing. 
dot com dot com yeah i was like i was like i think it's a simple one um yeah, yeah we'll, we'll uh, post a hyperlink down in the description after we get this video up and running heck yeah so uh yeah if you want to support us definitely buy those recipe kits um might even depending on how this week goes throw up another one or two if you know we start getting consistent orders for them yeah it'd be nice to, and then the more we can ship out the more we might be able to work with a shipper to hopefully get that shipping price down so it's definitely still in the r&d the uh, the beta phase but uh it should be a really fun yep. thing to get out Yep, trying to get the freshest ingredients out to you, which I don't think any other shipping brewery supply place does. I think that everything just sits in a warehouse for them. So We care. Yeah, we care. We want to do the best by the people that buy from us. Grains, so. are, grains are milled like the day they get shipped out. Yep. We make sure we get fresh, uh, the freshest hops. With that said, it's not always that easy when you got like noble hops to work with, but subject to availability <laughs> subject to availability but we, pick, we, we don't uh, have a one-size-fits-all <laughs> recipe it's not like this is always going to be the recipe if something changes and a new hop rattle for example is going to be fresher than the previous recipe we'll switch up the recipe to make sure that you're getting the freshest ingredients because that's more important than actually what's in it <laughs> speaking of hops and lack thereof let us let's go to our ready ready for it <clears throat> almost gotta clear up <sighs> ready? all right i'm ready beer of the week beer of the week yeah all right, our beer of the week style is a tropical stout this week, and um, tropical stout's a fun one. It's one that we haven't yeah. had a lot of commercial examples available to us. Honestly, I've never brewed one, so <laughs> I have had a. I've had probably I wouldn't say a lot, but I've had probably two yeah. or three that other people have brewed that I thought were fantastic, but I haven't really delved into the style. And I've had one commercial example. I believe it was Sierra Nevada that released one last year. Um, comes with like a nice blue label. Looks super delicious. Tastes super delicious. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I take that back. I think I did brew one. That's what we were talking about yesterday when we were doing our research. Oh, yeah. On the I, style. I, I think we did brew one um, about a year and a half, two years ago when we were actually trying to do more or less a Baltic porter yeah. and uh, fermented that super warm. Had these like crazy fruity notes to it. And uh, so I guess that probably would have fallen more or less in that range of a tropical stout. Um, but let's go on to what uh, hops. Uh, first of all, before we get into the hop of the week, we should talk about the fact that tropical stouts are relatively low in hop character. So, uh, you know, you're not supposed to be getting a lot of flavor or aroma from the hops. But just in case you accidentally do, you should probably pick a hop that's going to blend in well with the yeast that you choose. So we chose Sabro. Sabro is a fairly new hop to uh, the market and really has become known for its um, big, uh, wow, coconut. There we go. That was the word I was going for. Sabro's got some really big coconuts, <laughs> you know? Uh, but it is also mistaken a lot for being a fantastic IPA hop, and I think that comes down to a lot of um, the fact that this hop isn't as pungent as a lot of other IPA hops that you might be using. Yeah, and the, that's why it's a good choice for a tropical stout because uh, on top of not wanting a lot of flavor or aroma from your hops in a tropical stout, uh, you also don't want an overly assertive, assertive amount of hop aggression. So things that are going to be overly pungent like Columbus are going to be out. Things that are going to be over Kobaidi like Chinook or Centennial, those are going to be out. Sabro overall is just a relatively soft hop, and if you happen to get some of that coconut flavor lingering into the beer, it's going to blend pretty damn well. Yeah, so um, fun fact. Yeah, we actually went into that research thinking that Oh yeah, tropical stout. It's got to be like a hop forward stout or something like that, like with big new world fruity hops. And yes, while Sabro is going to be fall into that fruity category, um, you're actually not going to load it up. Um, specifically in the style guidelines, it says this is not a hop forward beer. The aroma has little to no hop aromatics to it, um, and really that aroma is going to be coming from the yeast itself. So I would say on a hop schedule, um, you're not really going to throw more than maybe an ounce of hops at this beer. Um, you are aiming uh, for, for that a five 40, gallon bounce. So that, yeah, you are aiming for that 45 to 50 IBUs, and so you should be able to get there with an ounce at 60 minutes, where you can maybe if you want to bolster a little bit of that middle ground, do like an ounce and a half at what was that? Jiminy Crispix. That was your phone. That was not my phone. That, that's, oh. not, that's not on my phone sound. Okay. Uh, maybe an ounce and a half uh, at uh, you know 30 to 45 minutes if you want to maybe touch on to a little bit of flavor that you don't need. Um, let's go into... the mic. Huh? Never mind. Keep going. You're just giving like big slurpy noises to the mic? Yeah, pretty much. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's go on to... Uh, the slurp probably sounded super crispy though. The malt of the week, which uh, we actually chose a little bit different one. Um, typically, you know, you might think of like, oh, just regular old carafa or something like that. You know, like yeah, a carafa. Yeah, instead of malt of the week is two row. <laughs> no, it's just not kidding. two row. 
Uh, it is chocolate wheat malt, which is one that provides absolutely delicious flavors um, and yet is not used enough, in my opinion. Yeah, I actually really enjoy chocolate wheat as a middle, and a lot of times I'll substitute, you know, in recipes, I'll substitute uh, chocolate malt for chocolate wheat. Unfortunately, uh, the main vendor that we order from every week does not have chocolate wheat, and so when we're out of it, we're out of it for a solid, like, month plus at a time, um, as we are currently. Are uh, we actually? Yeah, we're out of oh, chocolate wheat right I thought now. we had some. Uh, no, no, we had the, the rest of the bag got sold, too. Uh, or no, maybe we use it in a in a seven barrel. Dang it, a big batch. Anyways, me. Um, but chocolate wheat's really nice because of the higher protein content going into the overall whatever they do to make chocolate. It seems to have a little bit more maturity, but that same uh, nice chocolate intensity. So without being powdery like the like barley chocolate. Malt yeah. Maybe. So some quick specs. Um, this is a really really dark malt too, which actually makes it great for adding um, color without excessive roastiness to a style like a tropical stout. Um, tropical stout should not have roastiness like a typical stout would, um, where it might be it might be roasty, might be burnt, might have almost a smoky characteristic, um, but. The Lova Bond is actually going to be right around that 400 um, L mark, so really, really dark malt. And then on top of that, we don't have the husk associated with um, some of the barley-based roasted malts. That, uh, going to be de-bittered. Yep, so, so you're not going to get that tannic bite. Um, and that's another kind of big factor in the style. Uh, this style should really, really be actually on the sweet side. Um, it should be... It should be full, it should be sweet, um, and it shouldn't be overly roasty, shouldn't be overly bitter at the same time. You good? You're just going to leave it at that? Yeah, it shouldn't be overly <laughs> roasty at the same time. Yeah, as for amount um, for five-gallon batches, um, you're going to be wanting to shoot for somewhere in that half a pound range. Um, you might want to add push some... Push it a little bit if you got some other stuff going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, somewhere in about that half a pound. You you could probably go up to 12 ounces. I wouldn't... I would definitely cap it at like a pound i wouldn't go over a pound and you are going to want to blend it with some other uh dark roasty malts and so this tropical style yep. can get you know it can be on that darker side 30 to 40 srm uh but uh yeah going ahead and 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 maybe going for between that and some other darker malts going you know a pound and a quarter uh somewhere on that 10 to 15 percent range i mean if you really want to get on the darker end it can be appropriate yes so some of the other flavor profiles of strop tropical stouts are going to be um that sweetness a sort of um uh, I forget what the term is. It's like uh, vinous, I think vinous quality to it. Yeah, that means um, wine, wine like. Which you can you can actually get from some pretty like some heavily roasted or like double roasted crystal. I think would be another good malt or something in that um, crystal malt range. It's going to be above that hundred lova bond. So C one twenty, C one fifty. What do we got? We got like uh, some special aroma would probably work really good. Or, is that is that the malt I'm thinking of? Special uh, special X or Cara Aroma? Cara Aroma, that's yeah. it. Yeah, Cara Aroma. Anyways, um, the one that's like 120 uh, from I think that's the best malt. Malt. Um, that's a special X. Yep. Yeah. So onto the yeast, which is also a really interesting part of this beer style. So this is a. Uh, uh, what is it? Basically, it's a typically fermented steam. with a lager yeast. Actually, yeah, yeah. So lager yeast fermented hot though. Um, yeah. So you push some fruity notes off of your lager yeast, which means you don't want to choose a lager yeast that's going to be super neutral no matter what. You want to choose a lager yeast that's going to be, you know, nice and uh, um, nice and fruity when you ferment it a little bit warm. Yep. So your thirty-four seventy Bohemian lager probably won't be the right choice. The, this is like one of the rare occasions I actually wouldn't use this yeast, considering it's one of my favorite strains. Um, and instead, I think the yeast that would really fit this which uh, I have fermented hot and it does tend to get really really nice and free almost throwing these like really raisiny notes honestly um, and that is the uh, from Y yeast it is the 2633 I think that's right uh, yeah fun story about that one um, of our first videos that we did uh, like I want to say it was like our third video or fourth video uh, was one where you fermented with the, the, the Oktoberfest blend I think it might have been one that we did uh, we did the with a local malt local Pilsner Sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. with Link Malts. Um, and that one tasted fantastic with thirty with um, 2633, the Oktoberfest blend fermented a little bit warm too. So, yeah, so that would be a fantastic strain. Throws, definitely throws the fruitiness when fermented and at, say, 70 degrees, 75 degrees even. Um, I wouldn't be afraid to really push that if, if uh, you know, you do have a, a warmish spot. Um, with that said, any kind of room temperature should work just fine to get that that character that you're wanting to um, it's going to push through like i said the raisin qualities any kind of plum qualities um, which are actually going to 
um, make and round out this beer style. Now, what you're really aiming for is also with the with the warmer temperatures, um, you're aiming for something that's going to be, be pushing forward some alcohol flavors too, because a little bit of that alcohol note actually is appropriate for this style, which is kind of surprising because the style actually tops out at eight percent. Um, and being you know eight percent, a lot of eight percent beers don't necessarily push forward that that uh, kind of alcohol bite, um, but it is appropriate in the tropical style. Um, to sum up a tropical style, basically it's uh, supposed, to be, supposed to be a nice stout that is surprisingly refreshing in a warmer climate, which is why you get the name tropical. Almost a hybrid between a like Schwarz beer and a uh, Baltic Porter is the way I look at it. Um, one other thing though to note, I think uh, we almost forgot about that, um, is that uh, having other adjuncts, um, especially sugar adjuncts, um, so the final gravities can be pretty low on the on this beer style. So having some sugar adjuncts, things like uh, you know some brown sugar, turbinado, oh, yeah. um, or just regular old like cane sugar, um, can actually dry this beer out. And like Peter said, um, you know by definition it's supposed to be refreshing it's supposed to be light um, so just o overall lowering that final gravity not having quite as thick of a beer compared to something like a baltic porter um, is really really what you're shooting for so don't be afraid to throw um I don't know. What would you shoot for? Maybe well, like 10% simple sugars. Like 10%. Like that. Yeah. yeah 10 you're, aiming, you're aiming for right around that probably pound, pound and a half at, at, at the high end. But yeah. uh, this, this beer can go down to 10, 10. Um, so uh, that, I mean, that finish is relatively dry for a beer that can be up to 8%. So, yep. So, um, so sure don't be afraid to throw, throw a little bit of uh, kind of simple sugars at it and, or, and or some more complex sugars. Um, I actually really like on these darker beers, um, either using like a dark brown sugar um, or even a little bit of molasses doesn't hurt anything. Molasses can get super aggressive, though, so make sure you're not, like, throwing a bunch yeah, of Yeah, just a little there. bit of molasses. So, all right. Well, that sums up Tropical Stout. Uh, hopefully, we will be brewing one as the weather warms up, which is not the case today. It actually snowed this morning here. Hashtag April does not like us. Yeah. Um, yeah, what, where's my warm weather? It's supposed to be, like, 65 degrees now. What are you looking for? Stop being boring. All right. <laughs> There's a reason I typed that. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. I just felt like I started zoning out during that last part because it was like, man, this is drilling on. Anyways. On to our topics of the week. Uh, are we – so, okay, I'm confused by what you did there. Did you try to do uh, – uh, th is this still happening or is that not still happening? No, we can talk about open fermentation. Okay. We, that's, that's all right. We can talk about it. That's all, Okay, so you're, you're planning on not talking about it, but we are talking about it. Yeah, we can talk about it. Okay. Um, <laughs> open fermentation. So open fermentation is uh, um, basically a style of fermentation where you don't uh, – it's the exact opposite of a closed system. And the reason that open fermentation came to mind is because open fermentation can actually lend some nice, pleasant, fruity notes. If we're aiming for something like a tropical stout where, you know, you want to push the fruity notes of those lagers, open fermentation might be your key. There you go. Um, and this – when we say open fermentation – um, we don't necessarily mean just putting your beer in a bucket and leaving the lid off. Um, you do want some oxygen in there, but you have to be very specific on, on where you're placing that. You know, obviously a place like here where we're milling grains constantly and we have grain dust floating around, um, you're just asking for contamination in your beer. And we ferment it with a lot of quike strains. Yeah. So, so typically, um, an open fermentation means that you're allowing some kind of oxygen to, to hit the krausen of that beer, um, and hit the surface and allow a true top cropping ferment or two top cropping yeast, um, something like a Bavarian wheat strain, um, to really, really take advantage of that um, extra amount of oxygen hitting the Krausen. Uh, what I've always done with uh, open fermentation uh, on the smaller scale, where I know I don't have a perfectly sanitized room, as I've taken some sort of vessel that I can, you know, throw aluminum foil over or put a lid loosely on, and I'll let it go for a handful of days until that Krausen starts to drop. And that's when I'll either seal it off or I'll transfer it at that point because yeah. you really don't want oxygen getting in late stage fermentation. Uh, and you really want to make sure that you're keeping that, um, that situation as free of any bacteria that can get in there as possible. Um, that said, if you do proper open, open fermentation with good top cropping yeast, you can get a really nice flavor. Uh, and that, uh, that, uh, that Krausen can actually help protect your beer from other baddies because it's, uh, you know, it's creating an environment where it wants to live and not other stuff. Yeah. So, you know, start with some foil. Um, honestly, even if you had got like some nice clean cheesecloth or something that you can drape over, that's not going to seal it up completely, but at the same time, keep anything from falling down out of the air, then uh, that's the best way to do it. Um, 
after about usually three-ish days, depending on you know your pitch rate and and temperature, um, that's when you probably want to pull that off and actually put a put a lid on the fermenter and seal that sucker off, just so that um, you don't get any kind of suck back from temperature variations or anything yeah. like that. Because usually by then your fermentation's starting to die off. You've kind of peaked out and we're finishing up. Um, there's a lot of beers that I've actually kind of forced myself to uh, to finish early or get into a package early. Um, doing a pseudo spund early, actually, strangely enough, um, but uh, because it was you know I didn't have a an, an environment where it's necessarily appropriate, and I had a my our, our original 20 plus gallon fermenter actually did not seal properly, which is why I started that doing is a lot true. of uh, open fermentations. Yeah, um, yeah, that little uh, what was that? That was just like a milk thing. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you really cranked it down, you can get it to seal, but at the same time, it was so much easier to just kind of do an open fermentation and transfer off early. Uh, it worked really well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, uh, we should add that on bigger scales, a lot of times open fermentation is a lot more appropriate because you're working with uh, um, basically an environment that you control. And so if you're throwing your own yeast at that place, then your yeast is going to be the thing that dominates the entire situation. Um, and there's a lot of more advanced techniques that can go in with like continuous fermentation and cropping and all that. Yeah, not to mention the overall size of the vessel playing a big role in just the sheer amount of CO2 that's being thrown off. Generally on a commercial side, you're going to have these deeper vessels. And so that sort of blanket of CO2 that your yeast is is actually producing um, is going to be just streaming off of that where on a small scale at home where you might only have a vessel that's a foot deep, you're not going to have that, which is why we kind of recommend putting some kind of protective layer over the top. Yeah. Or you can just, you know, get a really, really big fermenter that takes up your entire room and then ferment in it constantly. Yeah. So overall, though, open fermentations um, for things like wheat beers can actually really push uh, forward those banana notes. So if you actually want to make a a true banana vice, uh, that is a really, really great technique. Um, But also for, you know, more modern beers, things like American IPAs, um, even with uh, fairly neutral ale strains, uh, that for some reason can tend to push those those fruity notes from the hops as well um and that actually while i've looked into it i don't really have a good scientific answer as to why that happens other than the fact that it does yeah um finally before we close off the open fermentation i'll say that there's a whole nother side to this topic that goes into wild ales and wild fermentations um that's true uh we won't talk about that because that uh, involves some other techniques that goes uh, down a rabbit hole for sure yeah (laughs) it's definitely a fun topic but we won't talk about it today um let's go Uh, into you want to talk about this before we talk about that surely surely cool um, so getting the most out of your quike yeast. And I already saw earlier in the stream that we got a Norwegian. Speaking of open so. fermentations. Right. <laughs> um, uh, would be another great one, actually, to do an yeah. open fermentation with. Also, quike wouldn't be the worst idea in a, uh, in a tropical stout, too, um, which is one of the very first comments we got. Thinking about doing a tropical stout with Hornadal quike. Hey, there you go. Pushes forward a lot of the same fruity notes that you want off your yeast, but uh, uh, in a much quiker way. Oh, God. <laughs> this guy sometimes. Right, right. Uh, so uh yeah so anyway um flavor from kike so we have had a lot of actually experience with uh using not necessarily the horn and all but the uh, boss. boss strain um from imperial which is their their loki but also the blend as well and really our experience is that um this yeast has a huge huge variance of flavors and it all depends on really how you're pitching it um, temperature is a huge impact and then kind of the overall beer base and environment that you're giving it to work with yeah so uh, if you haven't worked with quite very much uh, you know I'm, I, I'm sure a lot of you have or at least have heard of it because it's becoming very very topical in the beer world but if you haven't yeah. worked with it enough the things that you need to know about quike is that it can it's designed to be a yeast that uh, can ferment really really quickly I think that actually is part of the root of its name why it's called quike um, but uh, for it to, to do that, it definitely needs some some proper coddling. That's probably the best way to put it. Yeah. Um, so if you do want to ferment this strain um, on a low temperature, um, there's one thing to, to think about, and that is um, actually temperature is a big part of it. For, for one, um, low temperatures, what we've experienced is that it, it tends to throw um, a nice light tangerine-like um, ester profile from it. That's the Voss specifically. Yes, the Voss specifically. Um, and then at, at higher temperatures, it can actually be clean, um, but have a hard time finishing out regardless. And so by higher temperatures, I mean, um, honestly, like 80, plus. 90 degrees. Yeah. 
Uh, our best, our best uh, um, ferments that we've gotten out of it, we actually have pushed it above 100. And part of that has to do with the health of your of your quike. So if, if it's your first pitch, I don't recommend doing that. Or if you're not doing a starter, um, I usually try to air just a little bit under that, maybe like 90, 95. Uh, but second pitch, especially if you have too much, because you can't have too much, you definitely want to under pitch this yeast a little bit. Um, then uh, the second pitch, you can definitely push that up to that 100 degrees and have it be plenty, plenty good. Yeah. So speaking of under pitching, that is what we found is actually the best technique in combination with uh, proper oxygenation and then a very, very uh, healthy dose of yeast nutrient for um, this strain. And that's really how, what's going to push through um, those fruity, um, sometimes even funky flavors, especially more from the Hornadol strain than, than the Voss strain. Uh, that, and so that's, that's sort of our best practices that we found, um, ferment that hot. So it finishes out, especially at those low temps that it doesn't like to finish out. So usually you got to heat it up. Um, and then, so another thing is that, um, we've seen people do this a couple times and that they use this strain and then they, um, still sort of bitter a beer to almost a West coast standard when they're brewing an IPA. Um, and they might throw, you know, 50 IBUs, 80 IBUs of, of bittering hops at a, at a beer like this. And really what that's going to do is it's going to blow out some of the more delicate flavors that this yeast strain will throw out. This, this strain goes really well with hazies and a lot of those newer juicy IPAs because the subtlety of, uh, of the fruitiness that you're getting off the hops actually blends really well in some of the fruitiness of the quite yeast. Um, that said, uh, if you're, yeah, like Logan said, if you're kind of blowing it out, you're maybe just losing the losing the allure of, uh, of, you know, brewing with that yeast. Yeah. I mean, it's still going to work, but it's just, it's, it gets to the point of like, why would you use that yeast in the first place? If well, you're I just going to cover like, it the up. Two day fermentation, that's probably a benefit. Well, there's that. Yeah, there is On that the commercial too. scale. Yeah. So it, it does, it does tear through, um, some beer if you keep it nice and warm, yeah. but then again, pretty much any yeast strain will. So yeah. Um, but, uh, all right. What else right. we got So on quake? So to, I don't know if we talked about nutrient, uh, but especially when you're under pitching, which you should be under pitching with quake, um, um, uh, uh, doing a lot of nutrient, like more nutrient than you think, like four times more nutrient than you think you'd normally need uh, in this strain is, uh, is super, super important because it has to go through a lot of multiplications to rip through a beer. Yeah, definitely. I mean, what, what are we dosing per barrel, which is 31 and a half gallons? It's like... It's like several ounces, I think, of our nutrient that we're using. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, per barrel, I think it's probably like eight ounces of nutrient. Mm -hmm. um, and also per barrel, a lot of times when we're doing this, when we're fermenting at that 100 degrees, we'll use one pack of uh, Imperial's Loki uh, for an entire barrel. So that, that's certainly an underpitch. Um, but uh, if you're keeping that warm and you're making sure that it's staying in fermentation, which sometimes we'll do... Uh, um, on day on the second day of fermentation, so the day after we pitch it, what we'll do a lot of times is we'll open up the fermenter and uh, throw uh, some CO2 on the bottom to churn it up. At the same time, that we'll do things like uh, you know, if we're doing a brute, that's when we'll add enzyme to the beer. Um, if we're doing a dry hop, that's when we'll dry hop too because it's going to be done really, really fast. And so we want to make sure we get those dry hops in. Yeah, get those biotransformation hops working for you. Yeah, and then uh, uh, sometimes if. Uh, if you're worried, you can add more nutrient at this point too. I know a lot of yeah. bigger commercial scale breweries will add nutrient in stages like that too. Yep. So then the last thing to talk about with getting the most out of your quite yeast is that, uh, you don't want to get overly complicated with your grain bill. And I think this falls along the same lines as what happens when you over bitter these beers. Um, and that is, you know, keep your grain bill simple. Don't start throwing lots of crystal malts at it. Um, probably don't want to throw a lot of dark, dark malts at it because again, um, that's just going to overwhelm the, the actual profile of the yeast itself, which is what you're really wanting to highlight. Um, so keep it light, keep it simple. You know, if you want to build up some body, throw some adjunct, you know, flaked oats, flaked wheat, whatever you name it in there. But, uh, yeah, otherwise just find, you know, a nice tasty base malt, um, and really kind of let that work with the yeast strain itself. That's it. I mean, I think you can use quite in like a tropical style. I think that's, you know, yeah. you can, you can definitely do darker beers, but if you're trying to get the flavor of the, the quite yeast to really shine on its own, then yeah, definitely keep it simple. All right. Well, that's, uh, I think is a good breakdown of quite. Hopefully you guys got a little bit out of that. So let's go on to our last topic, which is, um, blending beer. This has kind of inspired me from an article that I came across the other day and I was like, Oh, that's interesting because, 
I have come across a lot of breweries, including ourselves, that love to blend beer right from the tap. Um, but there's also breweries, um, I don't know if I should like name drop, but sure, Crux um, is one that I've actually been to. And the head brewer refuses to blend any of their beers, which I thought was kind of weird. Um, so there's two um, different takes on that, but I kind of use that as inspiration to go down and, and uh, create a discussion about blending beer and really, you know, should it be done? Um, if it's done, when would you do it? And uh, what are the best ways to blend two beers together? Um. So we got, but really quick, uh, uh, before we go on, there's a little bit of an argument, I think, on whether or not you should underpitch with Quike. There are two trains of thought. Uh, one is, in general, don't ever underpitch because you want to get the most out of your yeast. Uh, with Quike, it originally was an underpitched yeast because uh, of how it was pitched. Um, but uh, I will say, you can pitch normal amounts with Quike and still get great flavors. That's fine. Temperature and nutrient are still important, so get that temperature high. If you underpitch, nutrient is extra, extra, extra important, and you can get a really great beer in a small amount of time with underpitching. So yeah. I don't know if that helps out with whatever whatever's going on there. I think regardless of your pitch rate, you need to uh, make sure that you garcock that one, though. Garcock. Yeah. Garcock? Garcock. Like. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> Blending beers. Blending beers on the commercial scale is a lot more common than you think. Anytime you've had a, a barrel-aged or a sour beer, it's most likely blended if it's good. Yeah, so um, it's it's actually a much more common practice than than most people realize, and it is a great way to um, either one take beers that are out of balance mm-hmm. and and actually put them into a nice balance. Um, which I think, kind of mentioning the sours, a lot of times you'll have one sour that's super super aggressive, um, old and kind of acidic, and then you'll have a younger sour that's really nice and fruity or floral, um, but doesn't quite have that acidic bite that you're looking for. Um, whereas, and then the other uh, way to blend beers is if you're actually trying to um, just take two beers that might be good on their own but you're trying to get a little more complexity out of it and I think a great example of that is something that we usually do right off of our tap um, where um, a lot of times we'll have our caster muncher which is actually the kit that we're we're uh, shipping out to people now coffee light beer super yeah coffee light beer and then we also have um, usually some kind of a stout for instance our um, count chocula stout and and blending those tends to um, kind of reduce the the sort of thickness and robust body of that stouts um, with the thinner beer that is the uh, Kolsch, but also add those coffee characteristics to um, the roasted malts that are in the stout. And so both those beers together actually combine to make um, a more complex beer in the end. Yeah, so uh, it's a it's a fun way to take two beers that are normally good and just make them better. Or uh, a lot of times it comes down to the person who's drinking them. So we have plenty of people who don't necessarily like that particular combination, um, but like one beer over the other. Uh, in the same way, we have a lot of people that come in here that like sours-ish, or they're just getting into sours, but our sours might be a little bit more aggressive. And so we'll do the same kind of thing. We'll have a, a fantastic neutral beer like uh, the blonde that we have on right now, and we'll have our sour. And we'll be like, hey, by the way, if you like that flavor but just don't want it as intense, we can go ahead and just cut it down with some blonde. Um, and that is, for some reason, sort of taboo in the beer culture, but uh, I mean, it's, it's historically appropriate when it comes to beer. If you look at like uh, old world London. Black so, and tan, anyone? Like. Yeah, <laughs> it happens. Um, uh, but then let's talk about uh, blending on the production side, blending going into kegs in the first place, because this is something that's, uh, again, not thought of by the homebrewer as appropriate, but any homebrewer that's also a home winemaker probably knows that blending is something that you need to do. You make multiple wines, um, and every wine, like every wine that you see in the bottle, even like a Cabernet is usually a Cabernet with like 4% Syrah or something like that. It's, it's very common in the alcohol world, but for whatever reason dropped off in the beer world because we all started chasing that crisp American lager. Yeah. And I think Damn the it, big Budweiser. guys actually still do it, especially the traditional German guys. Um, there is a technique called Krausening, um, where you're actually taking some finished beer and putting that, uh, mixing that in with, uh, your new wart and and that actually does uh, it's not only you know keeps your yeast going and everything but it but it really aids in consistency of the product from batch to batch uh, especially when you're working with um, ingredients that may or may not be very consistent yeah yeah the big I mean in the big big boy world blending is kind of necessary to get the right the right uh, whatever it's called yeah there, um, I mean what so there are a few things too before we talk about blending at home um, of situations where blending is not appropriate. And um, that's 
something that we have seen too, even on the commercial side. And that's when you have an off flavor in your beer. Yeah, yeah, you can't, you can't blend away. Uh, you can't blend away the butter. <laughs> you can't blend away the butter. Yeah. So if you do have off flavors in your beer, um, definitely get that mindset um, out that. Well, I can just blend it with a beer that has a really strong flavor to cover those off flavors up. Um, That's called cheating, and it's not okay. <laughs> more, and the reality is more often than not, uh, it's not going to work. You're, you're still going to have those off flavors, and now you have twice as much beer that doesn't taste good. So, so if you do have off flavors, you know, either get through it, drink the batch, give it away to your buddies that don't know any better, um, and or just distill yeah, it just uh, or that too i mean that's, yeah that's another option so let's talk about strategies for blending at home um on the commercial scale what usually happens in let's say the sour world uh, actually probably most commonly in the sour world but also happens in the barrel world is they'll actually have blending tanks and so they'll take beers from you know folders or from uh, barrels <laughs> and they'll blend it into uh, or they'll put them into blending tanks which are basically tanks that are stacked in a quadrant that makes it really easy to say i'm gonna get this much of this beer and this much of this beer into the final product um, so at home, the way to do that is to use corny kegs as your blending tanks. So what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to take uh, two kegs and jumper the two kegs into one keg. And uh, first off, I guess what I should say is that um, generally you'll take those two, two beers, throw them on tap, and actually measure out very specific amounts of each beer to figure out what ratio you want to blend to sometimes this might be simple it might just be a one, yeah one to one ratio but a lot of times it's not a lot of times you're going to want to blend uh, a little bit more of one beer than another beer so what i recommend is trying to find um, some graduated uh, measurement tool and uh, actually mix those at a very specific amount into your pint glass until you get the flavor profile that just you're looking get your for micro pipette out um, and then what you'll do is you'll actually get some kind of a scale and you'll take those kegs um, and well I guess you'll take the empty keg and you'll put it on a scale and then you'll actually measure out by weight um, those ratios of beer going into the blend keg and and you'll do that by um, taking a liquid side to liquid side jumper and then just opening up the relief valve on the keg that you're trying to blend into um, and then obviously pushing that with co2 and in lieu of doing that you can always do the good old-fashioned eyeball test uh, what that means is if your beer is nice and cold as you're putting it into the new keg sometimes you'll see a little condensation line creep up and you can be like eh, that's about two-thirds <laughs> yeah this i mean there are, there's wiggle room for most beers um sours you might want to be a little bit more precise on um just because they can have some pretty strong flavor profiles to them um, but yeah with that said i mean when we're blending from the tap um, for instance, like the coffee Kolsch and the count, uh, that's, yeah, we eyeball it for sure. And, and we'll, we'll adjust it for people, whether it be it one to two or one to one. Yeah. Depending on what, uh, what flavors they want. Um, so yeah, that is a, that's your, that's your blending strategy at the home scale. Um, what else did we write down? Hmm. We Somebody asked down. if we can blend margarine, by the way. Blend margarine. Oh yeah. Margarine yes. is definitely better to blend than butter. Uh, I like to do margarine and peanut butter, uh, just to kind of loosen up the peanut butter a little bit. And then that goes really good. If you just blend it in with, uh, you know, like a quarter cup of IPA or something like that, that's a morning breakfast protein smoothie. You can blend that. Um, put a bird on it. <laughs> Uh, all right. And I think that more or less sums up our topic. So we're going to open this up to general questions at this time. This one's going to be a little bit of a quicker one today. Yeah. Go ahead and give us your Q and we'll give you the A. That was weird. What? <laughs> it's a question of the Q&A. We're Q&A. Okay, let's go. Somebody, somebody's saying that uh, blending beers just annoys untapped users, which is okay. <laughs> I, I honestly think we should annoy untapped users. <laughs> not to not to start anything, but we don't use untapped on purpose. Uh, yeah, it's it's a pretty um, subjective uh, forum. It's to an say interesting the least. thing. I'm not. I just yeah. I'm just uh, overall. I'm not super happy with how. Uh, um, with the contribution that Untapped makes to the craft beer community, yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot of people that kind of fall into the same boat as us, where we just don't. Uh, <laughs> I can't tell you how many like people I've seen actually leave reviews on beers, and it's not even the right beer. Oh yeah, that happens all the time. <laughs> it's not even the right brewery sometimes. Yeah, yeah. We just uh, we just had your beer from Kansas City, and we're gonna rate it a five stars. Well, thank you. It's not our beer. Our beer doesn't live in Kansas City, but uh, yeah, cool. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> all right. Speaking of bottling my raspberry ghost pepper kettle sour today, and it turned out exactly how i'd hoped love to send you one is there a disinfecting protocol nowadays 
uh, we'll just, you know, we'll wipe it down with some. That sounds really good. So, yes, please send us uh, that. And we will wipe it down with disinfectant wipes when it gets here. Yes. Maybe. I don't know. I'll just let Peter touch it, and then I'll wipe him down. Yeah. <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> just throw me in one of those uh, those hot showers or whatever. Uh, um, let's, yeah, let's work up. Spray it down with uh, IO Star. Love the flavors of West Coast IPAs, but sometimes have a bit of a burn. And I find that blending 50-50 with pale ale is a good experience. Cool. Yeah, and that's also a good way to add different flavors. Sometimes pale ales will come across with a little bit more like, uh, I don't know, sometimes like grassy or citrus flavors that IPAs don't have or vice versa. Um, IPAs a lot of times can have tons of like those fruity tropical hops. And so, yeah, for sure. Certainly so, yeah. T- tell your uh, local brewery to stop bittering their beer so much, too. It doesn't actually help anything. You don't need to bet on this. I don't know. I've had some really good, like, hyper-aggressive beers. Like, you know, the ones that you calculate out at, like, 200 IBUs, but they're really probably only, like, 80. <laughs> I accidentally made a tropical stout earlier infused with Malibu coconut rum. Yum. Okay. Uh, we have done some stouts. I can see that. Infused with some coconut rum. Yeah. And uh, that we actually, actually have rum flavoring is, uh, here that uh, we've played around with. Yeah, I'm curious to see how thick that beer was, though. That would be my only thing with the Malibu, is I know it's got a lot of that, like, it's probably got some glycerin or something in it to give you the mouthfeel. And it needs pineapple juice. Pineapple juice. Pineapple juice and Malibu. Pineapple juice would actually be a fantastic thing to add to a tropical stout, actually. And a brute IPA. Um, that, would, that would give you a little bit of that uh, acidity, a little bit of that, that fruitiness, and also dry that out. So if you're thinking about a sugar adjunct to add, you know, maybe think about throwing a couple cans of pineapple juice at it. I like the pineapple juice and a brute IPA idea just because uh, it gives you um, head yeah. tension, actually. Oh. It's uh, um, what would you substitute lactose with to make a stout creamy? Someone said oats. No, it sounds pretty good. Yeah, I'm getting way up there. Let's go back down to the more recent ones. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, I can. Uh, I got one. So somebody is asking generally what happens when you over pitch quike, um, and really when you over pitch it, it's not gonna necessarily hurt anything, but you're just getting less overall character from that yeast strain. Yeah. Um, generally, what happens is as you're fermenting any beer for that matter, uh, as those yeast divide, that's actually has to do a lot when you're getting some of your flavor components. The more divisions you get from a yeast. Um, the more flavor you're getting from that yeast. So that's that's a lot of times why people also recommend when you're doing a true lager, for instance, that you're actually upping your pitch rates because you want to keep any kind of flavor profile you might get down to an absolute minimum. So um, the quike is going to be the opposite. If you overpitch, it just means you're going to end up with a super clean beer. But still so, add a lot of nutrients. Because but still add nutrients, it. yeah. It just... Um, yeah, the, especially the Voss strain, it just doesn't like to finish off those last five points. So sometimes you got to like nudge it along. Nudge. Um, yeah, yeah. If you got the nutrients in there and you've got, uh, got the heat though, it'll do really good. What in the world am I drinking? I'm drinking electrolyte water. (laughs) Uh, A lot of it. It's, uh, it's my urine triple filtered. It's got electrolytes. Yeah, it takes a triple filter to get to, like, plutonium green. <laughs> Someone's asking if we have a new camera or lens. Uh, Is that a nope. good thing? That's a good thing, right? I don't know. Yeah. We, we played with the lighting to make it look more epic in here today. So we've got, like, a nice harsh-ish light coming on this side. And so yeah, we've got some shadows on this side. It's actually really dark in here. My face is kind of blown out, too, so... Your face is kind of... I look really sexy, though. Yeah, so. thanks. Thanks for that one. That's, <laughs> what's, that's what matters. You let us know. How do you like the overall aesthetic of this? Do you uh, like it better when we're, like, super, super lighted? Or yeah. do you like this more aggressive, like... Balance so uh, somebody's... Uh, we're all on the quike train now. So they're like, quike, is how, how I like to say that. Um, and they're asking if it'd, it'd be good for a New England. I mean, that's more or less the spinoff that people are doing is is they're doing New England. They're doing... I see it in New England more than anything else. Yeah, they're basically doing hazies. You're substituting, um, you know, your your London Ale 3 or your, your juice strains for, for this quike. Um, and you're just kind of accentuating that, that really, really citrus fruit profile to it. Um, some of the best ones I've had, honestly, have been with a little bit different hop profiles too. I actually find, uh, that, um, this is, uh, hops like New Zealand hops, like Motueka, uh, Wakatu, and, um, there's another one I can't quite remember. Um, that's a New Zealand hop go really, really well with these strains. Um, they just, there's something about the esters that the yeast itself throws, um, and then the profiles that the hops have that just 
go fantastic for a nice light hazy. Yeah. Honestly, just pretty much any way you do a New Zealand IPA or a New England IPA is going to taste really, really yep. good. That's, that's, yeah, it's, it's hard to go wrong with that. If, if you've got, you know, your whatever recipe you got for, for a hazy, then uh, the nice thing in throw the, that with some. The, the other reason that uh, Quike is a really good strain for, uh, um, for these New England, these super, like, juicy, hoppy-style mm-hmm. beers is because it is a style that you get completed and into packaging within three or four days. Yeah. This thing for, if, you, if, if you ferment properly, Quike will get the job done very fast, which means that the hop flavors that you're getting off of, um, you know, even the whirlpool, uh, the dry hop flavors, they, uh, they are super, super fresh. <laughs> the downside is being a warmer fermentation and an aggressive fermentation. You do risk volatilizing some hops, but uh, that's true. I think it's, it's a trade off cause you also get extra fruitiness off the yeast. And so it just seems to go pretty well. Now I'm almost wondering, Hey, here's a question for your viewers out there. Has anybody actually pitched, um, either like some Brett Lambicus or some Brett Brooks? <laughs> Um, towards the end of a quike fermentation and then let that go i that's something i kind of want to play with now that you know if we, if we want to go on the opposite end instead of a quick turner over do like a six month turnover let that brett have its way with it and then dry hop it right before you keg it um that's i feel would do it i feel like i feel like you might be able to get some really interesting flavors from something like that if you had the Brett towards the end too, I'd still keep that fermentation warm because that's a uh, Brett or oh, Brett yeah. Bruck specifically on the warm fermentation gets some really really nice like uh, wild ale kind of flavors, some nice uh, barnyard flavors. Bam! Quack is an old Norwegian word for yeast. I knew that. I just didn't think about it when I said it. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> would you recommend for an imperial? I would recommend highly recommend oxygenating. Yes, I don't. There's a whole thread that I missed. Uh, oh, someone actually mentioned that they use DRC, um, so that's cool. We uh, started carrying DRC not too long ago and actually haven't had a lot of chance to use it ourselves, but it sounds like it's going to be super good. Um, sweet Spanish wine notes. Hey, perfect. That must have been when we were talking about, like, uh, vinous qualities. Yeah. All right. Well, let us know if you have any more questions. We will try to answer a few more before we wrap up this live session. I find the quike strains are much more attenuative than the English uh, yeast substitutes for a NEPA. Uh, wouldn't the quike change the mouthfeel of a NEPA? Um, so overall, NEPAs can finish a little bit on the drier side. And yes, we have had that uh, a lot of those quikes will finish uh, um, uh, drier. That said, depending on uh, what you have in your mash, you can end up with uh, uh, a more mouthfeely kind of mash anyways. So. Yeah, I think that depends a lot on your mash. Our, ours actually tend to finish on the dry side regardless, and I think that just has to do a lot with the fact that um, we found that uh, Bessmalls Heidelberg um, is, is a great one to use for those really light beers, and it has a really high enzyme content to it. Um, so we just get crazy conversions regardless. I mean, we're talking about um, beers that, you know, be it Quake, be it your our London Ale 3 strain um, from Y Yeasts uh, that are going from 1060 down to like 09, 1010, somewhere in there. So. Yeah. And going down to 1008, I mean, you can still, depending on the precursors that are in there and what uh, what you have in there um, from your mash, even a 1008 beer can feel nice and mouthfeely. That is um, a good point, actually, yes. Um, so the mouthfeel is not necessarily just from the uh, final gravity of the beer. A lot of it has to do with those, uh, in this case, the beta-glucans from all of your, your flake stuffs. Yeah. Don't go through a beta-glucan stress. Don't do that. That'd be a bad idea for a hazy. In fact, it might make it clear. <laughs> <laughs> whoops made a clear hazy hey, sorry not sorry then it's a juicy <laughs> um norwegian home brewer big on quike brew sitting here laughing uh listening to americans talk about quike nice mm. <laughs> Bam. It's, it's always fun to see the people from uh, other spots of the world that have uh obviously <laughs> somebody's asking about uh whether or not it'll heat itself up and that all depends on Obviously, the size of the beer. Yeah, the volume. On a five-gallon batch, you're probably going to have to throw, throw a heater on it um, in a big old five-barrel insulated fermenter, definitely. Yeah, we can probably um, get to just, just with a proper pitch. Uh, if we're doing a five-barrel, we could probably get that thing to rise 10-plus degrees pretty easily. Um, that said, we still take care of making sure that it's going to be uh, popped up temperature-wise. Uh, what we'll do is we'll actually throw uh, a water heater and pump on it and uh, run that through the jacket. Bam. Um, 
Thoughts uh, on steeping flaked oats, uh, flaked, flaked, oats, flaked wheat, wheat or protein, protein grains for mouthfeel and an extract recipe? Yes, but uh, you also got to take into account protein solubility. There's a couple things that happen uh, that makes proteins more or less soluble. Um, honestly, you can get a great blend if you do a blend of a protease rest and a uh, and a steep. But that's obviously something you don't do in a um, homebrew recipe. What I might recommend is if you want to make sure that you're getting a lot off of that, uh, actually slightly toasting those first might mm -hmm. give more. Uh, other than that, you'll get a lot of proteins that'll drop out during fermentation. Yeah. Otherwise, I mean, if you're steeping them without any kind of enzymatic grains, you'll get some flavor. You're just not going to get as much extract as you would in a typical mash, I guess is the best way to say that. You know, you do get some gelatinization from the, from the uh, flaking process. Um, but yeah, it, I would just say if, if you're wanting to do it, throw in a pound of some kind of a, a pale base malt with them just to hopefully get a little bit of, of conversion and then maybe actually leave those guys in your water for a little bit longer when you're steeping them too just to try to get as much um, much of those proteins, much of those beta-glucans in solution. Being a, an extract beer, though, you'll naturally have a, a lower fermentability than doing an all-grain batch anyway, so you should end up with some thickness um, regardless. Yep. Thinking of a barley wine, starting with Imperial L17 lager yeast at 55 degrees and then adding another yeast after a few weeks. Ideas on what to add after the L17. Uh, and uh, the temperature is going to be about 65. Um, so a really aggressive strain that you're going to want to add is going to be something like um, the Pac-Man yeast, um, Rogue's yeast. Uh, you could try White Labs has a super high gravity yeast, but that one can get pretty, um, I don't know, pretty uh, alcohol boozy flavored. So it's not a super tasty yeast. So to finish up, though, I can see it working. Yeah. Um, generally, just whatever beastly neutral ale strain you can get your hands on. Um, that's that's going to be the best for you. Do either of us have any formal brewing education, or did we just do our own research? Uh, a lot of it comes from doing our own research. Uh, our education is both in the, in the biological world. So I went to college for biochemistry. He went to college for biology. Um, I think that gives us a small leg up when it comes to learning this stuff and knowing how to... Uh, uh, weed out bad information. Uh, but that said, and we ha we have had wrong information like over the course of the several years we've been doing this. And it just comes from, uh, I've, I've been in this business for eight years now. And I also network with a lot of brewers. Um, some of whom have formal education, who've done the UC Davis program, who've done the Sable, Sable program. Um, some, you know, we have some local uh, colleges now that, uh, have brewing programs. Um, and so networking is probably the biggest uh, source of information we have just talking to a lot of other brewers that, uh, are super smart and then also a lot of trial and error ourselves not to mention helping lots and lots of other small breweries in the area get up and running yep um but uh yeah really i think it's it's a lot of it has to do with experience too um that's that's We're active one. learners and we use that to our, our advantage yep because there, there's techniques that sort of come and go um when when basically when when the hard data finally comes in because there's there's a lot of hearsay in the beer world there's a lot of um, there's a lot of things that people think are important. There's a lot of things that people think aren't important. Um, and until you really play with it, you know, until either, you know, you experiment with it as a brewer or you start finding actual like hard studies that are coming out on it, it's really hard to say what kind of impact a lot of these things have. So, um, a lot of what we kind of tell you comes from our own experience with things. And we try to forward that same philosophy to you. Like, uh, there's a lot of things that we don't think that you can learn just from a book or just from us telling it to you. A lot of it, you'd have to kind of pick out your own experience. Um, you know, that could be based on your system, could be based on the ingredients you have available to you. Uh, but, uh, just brewing yeah. a lot is probably the best way to find out what tastes good and how you can consistently make good beer. Yeah. And it's naturally a very hard thing to study just because of all the variabilities. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's really hard to say that one variable was the cause of, of this thing when you have literally a hundred other variables that went into that same batch of beer. Um, and that's, I think the, the big thing with that said, um, that's why I also take anything everybody else says with a grain of salt. Like even yep. if I get, you know, an experience from another brewer, even if they're a very, very good brewer, um, and they say, Hey, by the way, I did this and it led to this flavor. My first thought is, uh, you know, how did that work and why did that work? And then I always kind of take it with a grain of salt. Like, okay, maybe it was that, maybe it's not, I'm going to have to try it for myself and figure it out. Um, I, mean, I trust a lot of the brewers that we talk to, but at the same time of you've, you've got to be a little bit guarded with uh, taking information because there's a lot of times you'll hear something and it's like, ah, that doesn't sound a hundred percent right. Um, and so you kind of keep that in the back of your mind and the next time you get a chance to actually experiment with it, then you can, you know, either disprove or cement that uh, yeah. as a positive idea in your head. 
Somebody's saying they want to study microbiology so they can understand yeast better. That is pretty cool. I would also really look into the chemistry side of things coming yeah. from a guy that has a biology degree just because uh, why I think my degree really helps me. Well, micro is a lot of chemistry. Yeah. Uh, somewhat so. No, no, it, well, it's, it, it's, it's organic chemistry. Yeah. Um, yeah. Why it helps me understand, I think, w all of the microbial world, especially when it comes to cleanliness and sanitation. I feel like I feel like I see things a little differently than a lot of people do. Um, chemistry will help you overall with the processes that go down in beer because it has a lot more to do with just yeast. That said, uh, there is a free online course through Harvard. Harvard actually pub publishes a lot of their uh, a lot of their courses online that you can just go ahead and take for free at your own pace. Uh, and Harvard has a mic microbiology course. So there you go. Nice. Take it. It. Uh, I mean, it's it's uh, it's a full course. So mm -hmm. expect to be spending hours and hours of your time taking it mm -hmm. as if you were in actual school. But it is super cool that all that information is, is out there for free. Lots of it nowadays. Okay. Well. We good. Um, we got We got to open up looking here. Looking at bottle oh, we got summing one more. conditioning with Brett. Any suggestions or tips? Just kick the Belgian ale. Looking at bottling some and conditioning with Brett. Any, okay. So uh, let it sit in the bottle for two years and then give it to somebody <clears throat> you really don't like. Yeah. Just make sure that you <laughs> add a ton of bottling and priming sugar and the Brett. No, uh, basically the, the biggest thing with that is just make sure that you know the uh, the gravity going into the bottle so you can calculate what how many volumes of CO2 um, and uh, adjust back with any sort of priming sugar. Uh, if it's above you know 1.006, I think, you probably don't need any priming sugar at all. Um, so you just got to purge the bottles with uh, uh, argon or nitrogen or CO2 if uh, that's all you got um, to make sure that there's no oxygen in there. But uh, the Brett will slowly but surely chew through all those uh, residual sugars, and then you'll end up with a nice dry beer in a couple of years. Yeah. Um, yeah, Brett, don't worry too much about bottle bombs, actually, unless you're doing that super, super long aging. Um, while, yes, it, it does keep breaking down um, sugars in there and keep fermenting them, it does it at a really, really slow rate. So, um, honestly, even like four or five months, you probably won't notice you know any any kind of bottle bomb it's not until you probably hit that year mark that things start getting getting real fizzy on you when using so. a spunding valve you're welcome jake um when using a spunding valve uh is it better to carbonate with the final points of gravity during primary fermentation or better to add priming sugar carbonate with the final points of gravity so take um take gravity samples as you're doing if you have a sample port that's the easiest way to do it if it involves you having to like open up a carboy and dig in there then i would just go ahead and use a uh, priming sugar um, but uh, on the commercial world, what we do is we take the gravity as it's going down and we calculate back from uh, it's what we expect its final gravity to be to spun and get that level of carbonation. That also saves a lot uh, in terms of, uh, for us, CO2 that we don't have to buy. Um, so that's the, that's the general thing to do with spunding. Yeah, otherwise just eyeballing it can help. It might not get you fully carbonated, but it should get you a better um, part of the way there and so if you just if you're eyeballing your fermentation you see your bubbler or whatever um, you know that that Krausen dropping and that bubbler significantly slowing down um, that is probably a good point to say yeah we could probably put a spunding valve on now because um, usually that's a sign that you're you know that that 80 80 ish 85 percent to your final gravity so did you just call an airlock a bubbler yeah cool I did just checking <laughs> hey that's what people use um, so, uh, one more that I see, do we have an email to ask questions to, uh, honestly, the best thing is Facebook or Instagram. Uh, our email is flooded with thousands of emails, like a lot of emails that I will never see because things I, get lost very easily in yeah. there. Um, but, uh, if you use Facebook or Instagram, you can go ahead and send us messages on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, also you can comment on the bottom of YouTube videos. I try to get to a lot of those, but, uh, it's, there's also a lot of YouTube comments. So again, those can get lost. Um, but yeah, if you send us a message on Facebook or Instagram, that's probably the best way to, uh, to ask questions. Did a brute finished at 1.009 used amylase enzyme in the fermenter. 1.009 is going to be high lower. for a brute. Um, so I would say, uh, Strategies for using enzyme. You definitely want to pitch it at high Krausen. I pitch it when, uh, that's usually when I add, um, uh, add my dry hops too. Um, but, uh, yeah, if you're using the right enzyme and you're keeping it warm and your yeast aren't dying or settling out. Um, so maybe just look into yeast choice too, but, uh, then it should finish close to one if you're, 
using a AMG. Yeah, it might um, take a little bit of time too. We prefer to use a real small amount, which means that you have to let it go for another week or even two weeks um, after hitting it with the enzyme in order to get down to that proper um, finished gravity, which actually should be more or less 1.0. So yeah, well, actually, with the uh, with the locale that we did, I mean, that's a low starting gravity. So I guess that's something else to look into. Yeah. The locale that we did started at 10:30 or 10:32, something like that. Uh, the second, the the day after pitch. Because um, we used the quike strain on that, the Voss quike strain. We're fermenting it hot. The day after pitch, it was down at 10, uh, 1.011, and was definitely looking like it was slowing down quite a bit. Uh, and that's when I dry hopped and added enzyme. And the next day, it was down at 1.000. So. Yep. So we even had them finish sub because if there's no sugars left, then you know you end up with like 998s, stuff like that. So yeah. Uh, yeah. If it's at 09, I would probably have let that go a little bit longer. Yeah. Um, also, it says you did the enzyme at the start of fermentation. So next time, just doing it when the yeast is super active seems to help quite a bit because also yeah. the yeast is churning up um, the, the enzyme and everything like that. So yeah. it seems to work pretty well. It goes. Um, so the enzyme is designed to work at those higher temperatures. So it actually works really slowly um, at fermentation temperatures. And that's that's a big part of things. Mm-hmm. Um, which you can always, I guess, add a bunch, which makes it go faster. But then we've noticed it has this weird sort of meaty yeah. flavor associated with it. Proteiny. Yeah. A little bit goes a long ways. All right. I think that's, uh, that's all the questions that I can see. Sorry if we missed something. Um, Go ahead and post that in the comments below, and we will wrap up this session. Thank you all for watching. If you like these live streams, don't forget to check out our other videos on the channel. Um, like, subscribe. Tune all- in every Sunday at uh, 8.45 yeah. Pacific Standard Time. Yeah. Also hit the uh, little bell down below this video. That's actually going to send you a reminder on YouTube. Um, when we're going live. Cause when, sometimes we've been doing it at irregular times just because. Yep. So it'll let you know if we have new videos. It'll let you know when, when we're going live. So definitely click the, click the bell button, and we will see you next time. Cheers. Bye.